Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, on a copy of God's Word to Jeremiah chapter 3. Our passage this morning is chapter 3, 6 through chapter 4, verse 4. We're going to start by reading verses uh, 6 through 11. Jeremiah 3, 6 through 11. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 629. Beloved saints, this is God's word, and it is life to us. It is worthy of our attention. Please give your thoughtful hearing to it. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every hill and under every tree, and there played the whore. And I thought... After she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. And yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went up and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. And the reading of God's word at this point this morning. Let us ask that the Lord would open it to us and be with us as we spend our time in it this morning. Our gracious and merciful God, we know that you are great and that you are greatly to be praised. We long to know you and your attributes, your character, and your works, and it is these that you have recorded for us in your word. You have preserved your scriptures through the ages so that each generation might come afresh and behold through them your grace, your love, and your power. And so as we come to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, that we would behold its treasures. Father, allow us to gaze upon your beauty and splendor. Humble us, encourage us, and strengthen us in Jesus Christ, whom indeed we meet in your word. Amen. You may be seated. I love the parable of the prodigal son, and yet I think one of the most uh, surprising parts about that parable is the response of the older brother. Because as you're, you're reading the parable, you, you think that the, the, the story is about this younger son. He's the main point. And so as this child rebels and explores the depths of his lust and his sin, and he comes face to face with with just how sinful he is and his guilt and his shame. And as his arrogance is replaced with humility and a broken heart, and as he returns to his father with no pretense but no expectations, just only hoping to be taken as a servant in his father's house, and as he approaches his childhood home and his father runs to him, and embraces him, and he showers his son with love and forgiveness, and he kills the fatted calf. And as all these things happen, we, th- we think everything's good. Everything is as it should be. And we expect 
the parable to end there. But Jesus is not done at that point. He, ever the teacher, he, he never loses an opportunity to drive a point home. And so he draws our attention to that other, that, that older brother, that brother who to this point has kind of been the model child, the obedient son. He stood by his father when his prodigal took his inheritance and squandered it. That older brother served. He learned the family business. He was the perfect son. It seemed. But things are not always as they appear. And when he, when he saw his father's love and his father's forgiveness, when he, when he saw the celebration for that returning black sheep, that older brother did not rejoice. He was not happy. In fact, he was angry. And that revealed a duplicity in his heart hidden deep within. His outward reputation of service disguised a different kind of sin, but one that was no less serious than that of his younger brother. Because his obedience was, was nothing but pretense. It was, a, it was a facade. It did not flow from a humble heart that mirrored the kindness and love of his father. When his father's love and generosity poured out, the older son found that love and generosity repugnant and and showed that his heart was actually very different from the father whom he claimed to honor. And that's a helpful image for for us as we approach this next passage in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Last week, we heard about sin, (laughs) the sin of Israel. Uh, God rehearsed for us seven things he had heard Israel say, things you've probably heard come from your own mouth, your own lips, and we took, um, as we looked at those, we saw the road that, that sin leads us on. I tried to give them seven R's that they might be rem- memorable, these, these things that we do, this road that sin leads us down. Today we want to look at God's invitation to repentance and to turn from our sin. And we'll see that for every sin, everything that sin tries to teach us to say, God gives us something better in its place. So last week we had seven R's. I'll try to do seven C's this week. You can tell me how far I stretched to get there. Uh, but we'll see that the, for each of those temptations, God has a good word for us to replace it with. But the reason the, the parable of the prodigal son is such a good image for us is because much of chapter 3 revolves around two nations uh, within Israel that God likens to sisters. Um, and you want to remember a little bit of Israel's history. In the days of Solomon's son Rehoboam, uh, the kingdom of Israel was split into two nations. Uh, the ten tribes in the north, the ten northern tribes, uh, retained the name Israel. And the two tribes in the south became known as Judah. And so if you hear that difference, Israel and Judah, that's the difference. And God uses their relationship as a context in which to describe to us true repentance and help us understand and see what that is. Uh, What we're going to see is that repentance allows us to be who God wants us to be, but it also restores relationships. 
There's, there's two important things. Repentance is, is, is about uh, the heart and, and who God wants us to be on the inside, but also does beautiful things. We saw last week that sin destroys relationships. Repentance restores them. And to see this, we want to briefly look at Judah's response to Israel's rebellion, revealing that their obedience, much like that older brother's obedience in the parable of the prodigal son, was really only skin deep. It didn't penetrate to the heart. Uh, Then we want to look at God's call to true repentance and see those seven qualities uh, that he uses to describe true repentance. And then finally, we want to look at where true repentance comes from and what it produces, that, that, those restored relationships, like I said. Our, our passage begins with Israel's rebellion and Judah's response. Remember, Israel are the ten tribes in the north. They rebel first, and then Israel, uh, Judah, the two tribes in the south, their response. Um, the ten tribes in the north were never known uh, for their obedience they're kind of like the prodigal son. They were known for just being the black sheep, the rebellious ones. Not one king in their history is known for his commitment to God. Uh, there is no period in the northern kingdom's uh, history that is really defined by a pursuit of God uh, who had loved them, who had brought them up out of slavery in Egypt, who had given them this fruitful and wonderful land in which to dwell. Uh, their history is really known as bowing to uh, idols made of wood and stone. So when you hear that, you know, you played the horror with, with rocks and trees, that means those idols carved out of stone, carved out of wood. Uh, and Israel in the north really never even tried to hide the rebellion. They were quite open about it. They never repented. They never sought forgiveness. And so God allowed uh, the Assyrian Empire to come in and take that northern nation into captivity while Judah, that southern kingdom, witnessed all of this, according to verses 7 and 8. And you would think that, that this would kind of grab their attention. This is, this is what happens when you pursue your sin. That, that this would drive them to humility and that they would learn a healthy fear and awe for the seriousness with which God takes our sin. But that was not to be. Rather than learning from Israel's rebellion, uh, Judah imitated Israel's rebellion. There were seasons of repentance, but look at verse 10. Their, their repentance, we're told, was only uh, skin deep. It was pretense. It was, it was, a, it was a, a mask or a disguise, a facade. They did not truly repent, not with their whole heart. So it was only a ruse a sham. There was no sincerity, no honesty to their repentance. But God says that they were actually worse than that northern uh, Israel because at least Israel was honest about their rebellion. Judah cloaked her rebellion in holy-sounding language meant to hide uh, their reality. And it's against this reality that God calls the people of Judah to true repentance. True repentance. For what is that? What's the difference between false repentance and true repentance? Uh, I think God gives us seven qualities of true repentance, seven answers for each of the lies 
that sin told us last week that we saw in chapter 2. And the first is what we just looked at in verse 10. It's commitment without pretense. You, you, you turned to me, but you did so in pretense, he says. And do you remember what, uh, where everything started last week, where that road of sin began? Uh, it started with Israel's commitment to follow God and never to bow their knees to false gods. But you say, well, isn't that good? <laughs> commitment? Isn't that what God wants? Well, yes, Commitment is what God wants, but he wants commitment without pretense, without uh, lies, without deceit, without hypocrisy. You see, one of our greatest problems, and we can be honest about this, is we make bold promises of obedience. I'll never do it again, we swear to a loved one we've hurt. Or like Peter, we tell God, even if everyone else falls away, I'm your guy. And these would sound great if it wasn't for the simple fact that they are built on a foundation of pride. They're claiming strength that that no sinner truly possesses. They're not asking God for help. They're telling God, I'm here to help you. No need to worry, I'm here. How could they end in anything but failure? You see, God is honored not when we make promises we can't keep, but when we're honest and we lay our desires and our frailties and our weaknesses and and our fears before him. When Peter told Jesus that he would never fail, Jesus warned him that that he would do exactly that. He would deny him three times that night before the rooster crowed. Jesus was far happier three days later when Peter could barely look look Jesus in the eye. Because then he understood his need for Jesus, not Jesus' need for him. See, repentance, true repentance, confesses sin and weakness. And it, it looks to, as it looks to the future, true repentance acknowledges weakness. And so it gives commitment without pretense. It's, I, I, I belong to the Lord. I want to follow him. But I am weak. I am not perfect. I can't do this on my own. I need help. Someone who promises perfection is more interested in appearances than they are substance. The second thing that we learn about true repentance is that it includes contrition for guilt. Last week we saw that the first instinct of sin is to deny deny guilt. I've done no wrong. Like Adam and Eve hiding behind their fig leaves, we try to hide our shame. We find someone to blame. We make excuses. But true repentance simply says, I sinned, I'm guilty, and I have no excuse. It's interesting. In the original uh, of Hebrew, verse 13, it really just says, know your guilt. Know your guilt. Now, obviously, it's interested in you acknowledging your guilt. 
but it's pressing for something deeper. You need to be convinced that what you did was wrong, that you bear guilt for your sin. And that means more than simply acknowledging your guilt to appease others, because God's interested in what's going on in your heart. Beloved, if you're not crushed by your sin, if if you don't grieve over it, if it doesn't break your heart, if there's no contrition, then you're not repentant. The mere words coming out of your mouth doesn't mean you're truly repentant. The third thing that true repentance does, according to verse 15, is it takes comfort in God's blessing and provision. Comfort in God's blessing and provision. Last week we saw that sin leads us to despair. Once someone starts down the road of sin, the temptation is to say, it's hopeless, I'm just a sinner, I don't belong to God, he should just leave me alone and give up on me. It's because they're looking to themselves for the power to conquer their sin, and that power just isn't there. But look at verse 15. I will give you shepherds after my heart, my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. God is saying, don't look to yourselves for strength and provision. Look to me. You need help. You need others who can come alongside, who can feed you, care for you. You need to be strengthened from the outside. True repentance does not place its hope in self, but in God. And the point is simply this. The person who says, I messed up, I'll fix it, isn't repenting. The person who says, I messed up, it's hopeless, isn't repenting. True repentance says, I messed up, Lord, be my strength. Feed me with your knowledge and your understanding. That is enough. And that knowledge and understanding will lead you to confess the truth. It's the fourth thing, even when it's hard. One thing we saw last week is that sin likes to rewrite history. Remember what happened in chapter 2? That sin looks at the false gods and says, these have always been my gods. They gave me birth. This stone is my father. This tree is my mother. Sin will teach you to go back and deny the past and act like what you're doing now is all that you've ever done. Why do you think that temptation exists? It's because you will never have to explain the decision as a change of course. Why are you changing course? Because you need a good reason to change course. When we have no good reason, we like to pretend we're not changing course. No child likes going to his father and saying, I've decided to go down a foolish and sinful path. And we certainly don't want to do that with our heavenly father who gave us life. And so we deny, we deny, we deny. God is not my father. I don't need to go to him, we say. But look at verse 19. God says, How I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all the nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. God is saying, it's my desire that you, you turn to me, you don't, you don't turn away from me, that you, you delight in calling me father. 
You delight in coming to me. True repentance trusts the love of the Father and runs to it. It does not deny him. It confesses the truth. God is my Father, and I need to face him, even if that means discipline awaits. How many people have run from God, run from his love out of fear of discipline? How many have been unwilling to go to their Heavenly Father and confess their sin? Isn't that that exactly what we praise the prodigal son for doing? For going to his father whom he had wronged and accepting whatever comes. That's what true repentance does. You are my father and whatever you have for me is better than anything the world has to offer. And that leads to the next quality of true repentance. Seeding control. When people are in the grasp of sin, they will sometimes call out to God for help, like we saw in chapter 2. God, if you're there, help me out of this fix. Then I'll follow you. (laughs) And everyone knows what's going on in a situation like that. They're not bowing to God. They're trying to use him. They're really trying to control him. Thinking they have a bargaining chip, something to hold over God's head. Look at what verses 22 and 23 teach us to confess. Behold, we come to you for because you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. True repentance doesn't come to God in an attempt to control him, but to surrender to him because he's God. Because everything else is a lie and a delusion. Because there's salvation nowhere else. True repentance doesn't seek to control him, but to be controlled by him. It cedes control. It surrenders control. And that means true repentance, according to verse 25, clings to God. Sin teaches us to claim freedom from God. Sin says, cast him off. Say he has no claim on my life. But what we should be saying is laid out in verse 25. It says, Let us lie down in our shame. Let us let dishonor cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord, our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God. Not only does true repentance admit sin, but it does so acknowledging that the Lord is our God and that he has a claim on us. We belong to him. He has the right to demand things from us. He has the right to discipline us. And we must give an account to him. This is what it looks like to cling to him. When you understand that he alone is God, when you confess that he is your God, when you understand that he is your only hope, it is then that that you cling to him and you refuse to let go no matter what comes. This is what it was like for Jacob. He thinks his brother wants to kill him. He's up all night, which is like torture for me. Wrestling with the Lord. Come as, a, as, as a, a, an angel before the incarnation. As the, as the dawn approaches, the Lord touches Jacob's heel and cripples him. But despite being crippled, Jacob refuses to let go. The Lord says, let go of me. And, Jesus, and Jacob says, What? Let go of you? 
He accepted whatever the Lord threw at him because he understood he could not let go of the Lord and be okay. Cripple me. Take my life. Do whatever. But I'm holding on to you because there is hope nowhere else. There is life in no one else. True repentance fears losing God more than enduring his discipline. And so it clings to God no matter what. It says, I'll lay down in my bed of shame. I'll let my guilt cover me, but I'm not letting go of the Lord. There's one final quality of true repentance. It's this. Again, it responds to one of our sins. The final stage of sin uh, we saw last week was to rationalize our sin by claiming, you know what? We've gone our separate ways, but, but there's no bad blood. It's all very amicable. God, you know, we, we just decided to, you know, agree to disagree, go our separate ways, uh, but we can all still be friends. The last verse in our passage, chapter 4, verse 4, teaches us to confess that the only hope for peace with God is in circumcision of the heart. Chapter 4, verse 4 says this, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. Circumcise yourselves. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. So what is circumcision of the heart? Well, circumcision was an act of consecration. It was a visible sign that the Jews had been set apart from the world and belonged uniquely to God. The Jews became known as the circumcised because it marked them out as being God's special possession. But of course, as we've been seeing, for many, this was just a physical sign that bore no significance where it mattered. They bore the sign of consecration, but their hearts were hard and they were rebellious against their God. And so God says, circumcise your hearts. You, the outward sign should, should bear a, a, a parallel to your inward reality. Your heart should be set aside to me. In your heart of hearts, you must believe you solely belong to God, that you are his and he is yours, and, and nothing else is acceptable. Circumcision of the heart means that you believe that if you are not for God, you are against him. Circumcision of the heart accepts that there is no playing games at pretending indifference and peace. You can't say, I don't follow God, but I don't hate him. We're okay. We're friends. Jesus says, if you're not for me, you're against me. There is one road to peace with God. It is absolute commitment and devotion. We can play games with words. We can, we can acknowledge the truth, but God says if it doesn't penetrate down to your heart, if you don't turn to him in your heart, it's not really repentance. The word turn or return shows up 15 times in this passage. This, that's what repentance is. It's turning from your sin, turning to God. And throughout this passage, God continually says, if you return to me, then I will. And, and he talks about blessing and forgiveness. And this passage opens with an invitation 
to, re- to repent. It, it, it is an open invitation to repent. God warns of judgment for failure to repent and offers grace to those who do. And this is where we need to be careful. Because if we're not, we'll start to trust our repentance and not the God to whom we repent. Let's read uh, verses 14 through 18 of chapter 3. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not even come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land I gave your fathers for a heritage. In these verses, God draws our eyes away from ourselves, and even away from our own repentance is what provides hope. God does not turn our eyes to the temple and the Ark of the Covenant. He says, these are going to disappear and they won't be rebuilt and they won't be missed. Instead, he turns our eyes to the shepherds after God's own heart, whom he says he will give to those who repent. And ultimately, this will come down to one shepherd, one true and good shepherd, Jesus Christ. When he comes, he will displace the temple because the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, what they signified to Israel was God's presence among them. But when Jesus comes, God is present with us in a way the temple and the Ark of the Covenant can never hope to be. That shepherd, Jesus, will be our hope, our comfort, and our salvation True repentance leads you away from arrogance and confidence in yourself and it draws your heart to trust and place your hope and your confidence in Jesus Christ. The reason he's able to to forgive your rebellion when you come is because he came into this world to suffer all that your rebellion deserved. Those who truly repent and turn from their sins find forgiveness for those sins. They find a father who runs to meet them. He tells his, his angelic servants to prepare a feast. But there's something more when we repent. When you truly grieve over your sin and you truly understand God's grace, when your heart is humbled, and you're not trying to control God, how do you respond when others find that same grace or find God's blessing or his provision? You rejoice. You see, unlike the the prodigal's older brother, you rejoice because the heart of your father beats within your chest. And what delights him delights you. 
Because just as sin destroys relationships, humility and repentance restore relationships. Did you notice what verses 17 and 18 said would happen when God's people start repenting? Israel and Judah, who have been at war for centuries, who have antagonized each other, will be reunited with their God and with each other. More than this, it says that the Gentile nations will be drawn to them and find blessing. Join them in following their God. Repentance leads to restored relationships and and many people coming to faith and finding blessing and provision in God. Does that excite you? Do you rejoice when God blesses others? If not, you see shades of that older brother and you need to confess and repent. It's revealing that you're still struggling to understand the love and the kindness and the generosity of your father and to delight in it. We all struggle. We're selfish. What do you do when you see that? Do you listen to the voice of sin in chapter 2? There's nothing to see here, I'm fine. Or do you repent? Run to your God, not from him. Let your heart break. Take comfort in his provision. Confess the truth. Surrender control. Cling to your God. Ask him to make your heart beat as one with his. This is a good thing. It is a delightful thing. It's what repentance is, truly. As a visible reminder that God feeds us on his knowledge and his understanding the Lord has laid a meal before us. This meal only belongs to the repentant. There's no room for pretense here at the Lord's table. It's a reminder that that we don't need a physical temple because God, the good shepherd, has come into this world and laid down his life for us in order to offer us forgiveness and life and that if we have him, we have the presence of God every day. The Bible also tells us that just as we share one loaf, that we are reminded that when you come to God, it's not just your relationship with him that's restored, but your relationship with other believers that's restored. As we share a loaf of bread, we are reminded that we are united to each other in Jesus. And that should lead us to care for one another, to weep, with one another in hard times, to rejoice with one another in good times, and to rejoice whenever the Father shows mercy to one of his children. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts, how fickle they can be, how disconnected from the image we like to portray. Forgive us and grant us true repentance, repentance that runs deep, that flows from a broken and a humble heart that you alone can grant. But it is the only road of peace. It's the only road to hope. Father, be at work within us. Grant us commitment without pretense, contrition of guilt, comfort in your provision. Help us to confess your truth 
to, to cede control and to cling to you. Father, circumcise our hearts. For you are our God, you are our hope, you are our comfort. Our trust is in you alone. Amen.